What's up, y'all? It's your girl, Cinderella, and I am back with another case. I mean, I guess it's not another one because today's episode will be a continuation of last week's episode, The Smugglers and the Snitch. But before we get too much into the case, you know, we got to check in with one another, warm up. How y'all doing? How's y'all second week of Black History Month? I hope last week episode inspired y'all to start implementing small lessons of the day-to-day things we have because of black creators to your peers, your partners, your children, you know, a stranger on the street who just don't know that we built this shit. People are very blissful in their ignorance and it's up to us to open their eyes okay i know y'all probably been using this week to get ready for y'all valentine's i know hope y'all been getting y'all lingerie together the vibes planning very romantic dates that actually reflect you all's level of relationship okay don't be planning all this romantic helicopter rides hella flowers and diamonds and shit like you only try to be a boyfriend baby i need a ring where's my engagement and that's why i'm single because fuck a dating stage (laughs) when we get married we'll figure it out okay i guess that's enough for right now we can go ahead and get into the case we are looking at a different side of the miami drug wars we are looking at the Los Gringos, the three white men that made their way either by interest or by force into working with the Medellin cartel, the Colombians. It was a good episode. You know, last week was actually a lot of background. So I gave you background on the three major players that I wanted to talk about. Mickey Monday, John Roberts, and Max Mermelstein. So if you have not listened to that episode, please go do that because I'm not doing no review. <laughs> that was the briefest synopsis you're going to get. Go listen to the episode and then come back, start this one over, and you will be all caught up so we can conclude Los Gringos. And because this is an episode that is continuing, the theme still remains self-preservation, Okay. In last week's episode, self-preservation was very present at how John makes sure to save his own ass and leave New York City even though he had more mob ties than anything. He started fresh and went to a new city, okay? Self-preservation was when Max Mermelstein, fearing for his life, decided to cross over into the criminal side in order to keep his family safe, okay? Self-preservation came in Mickey Monday in the sense of he always felt like the government was too interfering in the day-to-day people's lives when they had bigger fish to fry, okay? So why not keep myself protected and stay ahead of the game against them? Last week, we ended it on the cliffhanger. I had just finished wrapping up the relationship between Max, Mickey, and John. Max and John were initial partners, but then John brought in Mickey against Max's wishes, and then Mickey and John started cutting Max out, and Max was not feeling it. We are back in the city of Miami, Following the peak of the cocaine trade. Now, I'm not saying it's over or nothing. I'm just saying where there are peaks, there are valleys. But we in 85, right? And it was still a high generating game, but the risk had become bigger and the threat of the feds were getting stronger. I mean, 
the cocaine godmother, Griselda Blanco, she was arrested by DEA agents in California, February of 1985. Hell's Angels got bammed up in a sweep in New York. The Mexican cartels were under surveillance after the kidnap and murder of a special agent. I mean, in other words, <laughs> the feds were finally doing their fucking job. <laughs> but meanwhile, the smuggling business was still going very well for John and Mickey as things were getting heavier in the streets of Miami. The competition had been minimized, basically, because before Griselda ran off to Cali, she was knocking hella drug lords off. Miami River Cops were in the midst of their downfall for trying to work both sides of the game. And for the competition who didn't have the same forethought as John and Mickey to work ahead of the government, the DEA was buckling down and stopping major work from coming in as well as arresting people on every level of the cocaine world, turning people fed. One particular person that was affected was Barry Seal. Barry Seal was one of the trusted pilots in John and Max's network. Barry had been busted on an FBI operation of smuggling fake Qualus into the country. And, okay, what is Qualus? Let me look. Why I just research it? For when, what I was saying, Qualus, bitches, Qualus. It's two A's, not one. <laughs> so that's an instance of where I can't spell it. That's the one time I done said something wrong and I can't spell it, okay? Um, but apparently Qualus, it was like, a super downer like it had the effect of rapidly making you sleepy um it said it was to help with anxiety sleep disorder um it was man-made pills so i guess it was that deal oh you know what's funny hold on what did it say quaaludes was a medicine owned by a division of pfizer these monopolized pharmaceutical companies okay that's not what this podcast is about. I'm sorry. Let's keep going. Barry had been busted on the FBI operation of smuggling fake Quaaludes into the country around 1984. He turned informant. But it's kind of funny because this nigga was begging the snitch. Like, he was begging because he went to Baton Rouge FBI and they was like, we don't want to hear it. He went to Florida FBI. They was like, we don't want to hear it. This man called the vice president president of the united states george bush left a message <laughs> i guess he got the secretary or something he left a message and they referred him to the dea office and the agent came and took a statement just because it was under the orders of the vice president because he was like why the fuck this nigga calling me <laughs> don't isn't there a chain of command for this shit like you should not be coming all the way to me so the DEA agent take a statement and he was like, hold on, you got connects to the Medellin cartel? And they didn't know about this because he got busted doing his own drugs, you feel me? The Quaaludes was on his own time with the white folks and whatnot. But when he was telling them, he was like, yeah, I be doing plane drops for da-da-da-da. You feel me? He was like, oh, word, yeah, we definitely gonna keep you informed. Okay, bet. So... I don't know if they were still developing the playbook on how to <laughs> handle informants or not. But I'm going to say they mishandled Barry from the beginning. Like, from the fact they didn't want to take any statements from him to the end. Okay? 
I will say, Barry kept it solid as far as the niggas who brought him in first. Max and John never came up in Barry's statement, okay? Like, so he kept it solid for the white man because he viewed them as middlemen. And he didn't think the feds needed to know about them. But he did turn on all the brown people. You know, the people he was living so nicely off of. Until he figured, I can use them as my scapegoats to get out of jail free type shit. The problem is, he did not get out of jail free. You feel me? Like I said, they mishandled him from the beginning. Because usually, they finish up and close your case privately. It ain't going to be no extra. They did both of his cases mad public. You feel me? Still gave him time that he had to serve. Not no time serve or giving, you know, testimony type shit. Niggas still had to do time. (laughs) Once he became an informant, he was part of like three major sting operations that helped to bring indictments against some of the bosses and separate cartels. He even flew a plane equipped with cameras that caught Escobar loading up the work. So, like, he was deep, okay? He didn't just turn fed and tell him what he know and ain't do no more. This man turned fed, went back undercover like he was, wasn't working a move, you feel me? So, you know how I was saying, like, they mishandled him from the beginning, you feel me? For some reason, it was a documentary about the snitches of america i don't know it was something that was posted on tv right see the cartel already knew something was going on because niggas started getting knocked off and these little drops and they shit was getting taken um their work wasn't making it to where it's supposed to be making it and shit like that and they knew it was one of their pilots and they narrowed it down to like who it could have been and ellis mckenzie was one of the niggas who it could have been right but they couldn't find this man right when they posted this man face on the TV as a snitch, they put this man on TV, right? The cartel seen him, learned that his real name was Barry Seal. They put a $500,000 tag on this man's head ASAP. And they were so upset that it ended up being a pilot that John and Max brought in. They was like, yeah, and we need an American to do this shit. We're not going to have none of ours do it. We're going to have an American do this shit because... I need to see that y'all still holding up y'all into the bargain. Because if y'all refuse to do it, I'ma think one of y'all snitching too. So they made Max take the deal. Max was like, okay, bet I got it. I'll I'll get him knocked off. Max again said he said that out of fear. And I'm inclined to believe him this time because he stalled out. I don't know if it's good that he stalled out or if it was like he should have just went ahead and took care of it. What ended up happening, he getting pressure from the cartel to go ahead and do this hit. But the feds is getting closer to his ass. So on June 5th, 1985, with information from another pilot, the DEA arrested Max near his home after being under surveillance for over a week. The arrest was described as a scene out of Miami Vice. Max was headed home in his Jaguar, flying down the beautiful residential streets of Miami when his car was suddenly flocked by FBI agents. They identified themselves as officials, and Max eventually slowed down to pull over. The agents secured him quickly, then they raided his car and found a loaded twenty two on the passenger seat, as well as cash. Teams went to his home and collected incriminating evidence of 25 guns and an array of ammunition with $250,000 in cash. And I will say, at first... Max tried to stay 10 toes, right? But see, once the cartel refused to fund his bill of $1 million, 
Which, hold on, right? That's real fucked up because that man done made y'all that money a hundred times over. Let's not forget, in the beginning of y'all relationship, in six years, he turned it from multi-million to multi-billion. You know, we ain't trying to give the white man too much credit, but I want y'all to see the growth that happened with dealing with the Jew. I really feel like I could have fronted him to Millie. But see, on the flip side, nigga, you knew what the fuck you got into. You feel me? Two, you should have did the hit. If you would have did the hit for Barry... I probably would have funded you your shit, you feel me? But because you drug your feet on that shit, it had me looking at you kind of sideways like you ain't solid. So, no, I ain't giving you a milli. But, yeah, the cartel refused to fund his bill of $1 million. When they didn't pay it, Max said, fuck him, and turned fed. Big time. Like, a U.S. attorney, James A. Walsh, even said that Mermelstein was probably the single most valuable government witness in drug matters that this country has ever known. I heard you read it for a cheesecake. Let me tell you how they did this, man. They set Max up lovely. So, it's a big contrast how they handle Max to how they handle Barry. They put that witness on TV. On the face of the TV, you feel me? They put Max immediately in witness protection. ASAP. The U.S. government gave this man a new name, protection for his wife and kids, a new job as the chief engineer for the Westgate Vacation Villas in Kissimmee. Again, I'm going to say the Westgate Vacation Villas in Kissimmee. And no, this is not for me to advertise. It's for me to inform all my friends who have felonies on their records to go apply. Because if they're letting, you know, people who work with the cartel work there, I know they accept felons because ain't no way they don't. Ain't no way, boy. Anyways, in addition to getting him a great job as a chief engineer they gave him a check for a light $255,900 just to have I mean because what does he need it for his living expenses are essentially being paid by the government i.e. us and he already has a job to make more money for him not to pay any rent And in exchange of him getting his white man's privilege reinstated, he promised to provide testimony for the indictments of Noriega, Rafa Cardona, the Ochoa brothers, and Escobar. Because of the vast information Max knew and not needing any more mishaps, the distributors in Miami for the Medellin cartel put a $3 million tag on his head. $3 million. When Max gave his four-hour sworn testimony, he had federal agents heavily armed on each side of him. And for a quick fun fact, you want to know who questioned Max for over four hours and received his testimony? Former U.S. Senator Joseph Biden or current President Joseph Biden himself. You know, the man who has time to put $3 million in funding crack pipes for drug users instead of paying attention to the federal student loan crisis. Yeah, that one. (laughs) The disrespect during Black History Month. Anyways, Al Winters, a federal prosecutor from New Orleans, said, 
Marmostein is unbelievable as a witness. He's as good a witness both in recall and quality in information. Marmostein was able to take ledgers written in shorthand unique to the cartel and translate the confusing scrawl to us. I mean, <laughs> this nigga was snitching. See, this is how they handled him differently, though, because aside from having him in witness protection, they didn't put him back in the trenches to keep finding out more shit. They kept that nigga for all the shit he knew previously. They said, shit, you've been working with these men for about eight, nine years. We're going to just take your word for it at this point. I mean, this nigga was getting accolades for being a snitch. What? Dark times, man. So, while Barry is going through trial and Max is under arrest, and it is very known that the highest American ranking member of the cartel has now turned over to be fed, John decided to step in and keep his face card good, despite what Max had going on. He told the cartel, I'm going to help take care of the Barry situation for you. And in John's defense, the feds were doing an awful job of protecting Barry. Seeing as he was able to get through to the VP, you would think the feds would do a better job and you would be the fuck wrong, bitch. They still cops and they still don't know how to do shit. <laughs> Barry still had to stand trial for his Quaaludes case and instead of holding him down, they sentenced him to probation to live in a halfway house and was forbidden to have private security. Is this a setup? What the fuck? So, John was like, fuck it. Clearly, the feds want him dead, too, because how they making it this easy? That's what the fuck I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to see what that be like. So, the Colombians, taking John up on his offer, sent three hitmen to Miami to meet with John. When Mickey met them, he described them as, like, the three stooges with guns. Less hitmen and more doofuses with muscle. He directed them to John, and John gave the orders. He gave the niggas a description of Barry's car, where he was staying, and equipped them with some MAC-10s and sent them on their way. On February 19th, 1986, after work, Barry pulled up to the halfway house at the Salvation Army. A guy comes up behind him and says his name. Barry turns around and gets sprayed. It ended up being sloppy work, but the job was completed for the most part. The cartel accepted the olive branch, and John collected his bread. Shit, remember, there was a $500,000 tag on Barry's head, bitch. Still needs mine. Work picked back up for John and Mickey, being back in the cartel's good graces. And with Griselda being locked up and other traffickers backing out the game, John saw more money to be made and loved the thrill. This nigga did not know how to fold his damn hand. Mickey didn't care about the money, but he also enjoyed the thrill of beating the government. They were in it to win it, becoming so confident that they didn't see their own downfall coming. It was known that Max had been arrested, but that didn't bother the two smugglers because, remember, they had essentially cut Max out of the planning and execution of their own operations, so they felt an extra layer of protection because he can't snitch on shit he don't know. And in that spirit, Mickey continued wanting to stay one step ahead of the government, and that's when he created the radio room. 
In this room, Mickey and John would listen to local and federal police as they attempted to stop shit from moving. Mickey would listen to the tapes and just hear for small details, and that could help shift a plan to a successful endeavor. And this is when they went from airdrops to sea drops, where instead of the packs being dropped off on land for a ground crew in the U.S., the planes wouldn't even come to the borders. They would unload in the sea. Mickey helped to create the waterproofing casing and outfit them with buoys so they could be easy to find by the fishing crew. They thought Max ain't no shit, but he did. And even though he was executing the feds hit list, he had his own. And at the top of it were Mickey and John for how they tried to disrespect him and play him. So he told what he knew, talking about all the different locations, different means of transportation, the businesses that they had as far as Mickey's boat shop, the car shop. And that's where it kind of changed for the feds because they realized that they were operating a bigger scale just with less people to flip. So the feds sent in an undercover agent. Though I gave Mickey a lot of praise during these two episodes, I will say, in my opinion, he was sort of the weak link. I mean, he's one of the most famed cowboys because he has a shitload of interviews. He was not shy of the camera. He had the rocker type style. Like, people loved him, right? But he was the reason a snake was able to infiltrate. Mickey was friendly as hell, okay? And he was taking in strays and just bringing niggas to work with him like a tag along. And the whole time, this man, an undercover agent, he's been working as Mickey's friend, but is a DEA agent for over a year, collecting more and more evidence, finding more and more out. And this is when he reported about a radio room. And I feel like this is when it really changed the game because the feds ain't know that they were being taped. These country-ass smugglers had the ups on government-funded idiots, and nobody knew. I felt like when they learned about the radio rooms, it was a collective aha moment. Like, this is why we never caught these niggas. It was when Mickey flew the undercover to the farm. That's what wrapped it for the operation. The DEA was now ready because they had figured where the central point of the trap was. So we're back on September 20th, 1986, where the story originally started. But instead of being inside the radio room at the boat shop with John, we're at the farm with Mickey. Mickey was at Yeehaw Junction waiting for the expected plane to do an airdrop. With the crew waiting in their designated spot, everything seemed like it was going according to plan. But soon, an airstrike team flew over the farm at the same time cops coming out with guns yelling for their arrest. Some workers started shooting back immediately while others attempted to run. Mickey was one of the ones that ran. As he was running, he purposely knocked over a can of gasoline near the barn And after running for more distance, allowing the cops to attempt to catch up, he shot a flare gun at the gasoline spill and set off an explosion. And just like that, Mickey Monday secured his escape where he disappeared into the swamps of Miami, which he knew pretty well. This is when John was back at the boat shop, on the floor, handcuffed, listening to all the commotion, and he started laughing. Like, he couldn't believe it. That son of a bitch outsmarted the cops again. 
The feds thought they could get John to trap Mickey. So, of course, they arrested him. They booked him, told him what he's suspected of, da-da-da-da. And it was like, but if you help us, if we, if you help us get Mickey, we'll, you know, we'll lessen your charges. You feel me? Because John made it clear from the get he wasn't snitching. So, he was like, I'm not snitching on what I do for work, but I'm willing to help you bring my friend in so he can get a lesser sentence as well type shit. You feel me? He was like working it as a loyalty thing, but like telling the feds, you know what? I got you. I'm going to help get him back, right? So, the feds let him out on bail, but they got him hella supervised. They on this man's ass. Like, they going to make sure this man doing what they said he was going to do. So, John making it believable. You feel me? He going to the boat shop. He's going to, like, Mickey's other car business and trying to see, like, hey, I seen Mickey. Where Mickey at? He done went to a relative of Mickey's. Like, hey, tell Mickey I'm looking for him. Whole time, though, my boy John leaving coded messages at each of those places. And Mickey's getting the coded messages. So, my boy John and Mickey thought ahead for if they ever do get caught so mickey was busy securing a private plane for john while john was working on getting new documents and identification for mickey i don't know what day it happened but they both ended up going skirt skirt on the feds they both got away and they were on the run for over five years John at first ran off to Columbia, but the heat was way too heavy because with most of his connects being murdered or in hiding, he didn't have anybody to help protect him or keep him working. So he went and got him a spot in Mexico because while he was like going to those places, he was unearthing money too. So he had got him by at least a million cash so he could be straight. He was good for a couple of years until one of his women saw him on America's Most Wanted and called it in. And they never said what the reward money was, but bitch, it better have been insane because I know you ain't snitching just for nothing. Okay, if you ain't learned nothing in this case, if you gonna snitch, snitch for a cheesecake. <laughs> like, it's a lot of rodents in this damn game, and I don't like that. And like everybody else, John fell victim to the same cheesecake child. When he got arrested, he ended up turning fed and became a cooperating witness in the trials of the cartel. So he got a reduced sentence for his testimony. So he only served 11 years in prison. And when he was released, he was not granted any extra protective custody or anything like that. So they had him back in Miami, you know, roughing it. He was in his interviews with the Cocaine Cowboys. He wrote his book. You know, he did his little thing on the press market run. I will say, though, his hating ass ex-girlfriend came out and said that John was using his connects later in life to snitch to the police for protection of his own crimes. But... Ain't no cop, ain't no attorney, ain't no judge ever corroborate that. And on December 28, 2011, John died from colorectal cancer at the age of 63. It was said he died a grumpy old man living a very moderate lifestyle. Fuck cancer. Mickey, he lived as a fugitive for six years until his arrest in Richmond by U.S. Marshals. He was sentenced to 10 years and served most of his sentence. He lived off the hype of old fame for a minute, you know, just being respected in the streets as, 
working with the cartel, one of the white men that ended up getting a little bit of time with the DEA, whatever. And then he had got, you know, the real claim fame to being on the cowboy documentaries. Because it was like cowboy, cocaine cowboys, cocaine cowboys reloaded. And then like a third one came out and he was in every single one of them. He did interviews on Serving Dope. He did hella interviews, okay? I guess all that fame and, you know, the little celebrity wasn't enough. He still needed a thrill. You know, like I said, Mickey was a thinker. He needed things to stimulate his mind. So, he joined another smuggling ring. (laughs) But this time he was working cars instead of drugs. He helped to create fraudulent documents and made a nice living. In 2018, Mickey was sentenced back to prison for 12 years. So, he's currently still serving his sentence. Max Mermelstein was in witness protection until the day he died on September 12, 2008 of natural causes. And... That's unfortunate because it wasn't without much effort from the high-ranking members of the cartel. He still had a $3 million tag on his head on the day he died. And it's not like them niggas did not try. They was trying. Like, they threatened to kidnap the creator of the witness protection program. And the witness protection program person had to go into witness protection. That's how deep them cartel members was on them niggas head they was trying to get max mermelstein they was gonna off the fuck out that nigga so i want to say he got lucky okay so out of the story mickey monday is the only living cocaine cowboy at this point i'm just saying ain't nothing too cloudy about history repeating itself white men infiltrate some shit steal goods and then ruin it look at every european colonized country (laughs) shit look at america I will say out of the three, I kind of like John the most. He was easier for me to connect with. But I guess it's also because he didn't hide in his truth. He's often quoted his dad of saying, evil is stronger than good. He knew he was a bad guy, but he used his charming personality, quick wits, and ability to partner with the right people. John learned that self-preservation was a necessity at a young age. In a quote from his book, he said, I might be a sociopath. Most of the time I've been on this earth, I had no regard for human life. That's been the key to my success. Y'all, that was the story of the smugglers and the snitch. You know, the three Americans who played key roles in cocaine trafficking during the time of the Miami Drug Wars. I really hope y'all have been enjoying this little series like I have. It's been so fun just, you know, researching and learning about all the moving parts of the drug wars. We will continue with another piece in the coming weeks, but next week, we're back to our regularly scheduled program. Murder! (laughs) Thank you guys for listening, and make sure you follow me on IG, Anchor.fm, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at Cloudy Conclusions.